But we're starting this month, uh, we're calling Vision Month. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that it's sort of a warning. It says that where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. That's right. The people perish. Now, it sounds like a really ominous thing to say, like, oh, so we don't have vision, like everyone's going to die. Um, it, it's talking about spiritual death. Um, it's talking about not having our, our purpose and understanding what it is that God's calling us to and what God wants us to do, um, and then pointing ourselves in that direction and then, and then moving on to the things that God wants us to accomplish. And we see this throughout Scripture, that you see that God gives someone a directive. They give them a goal. They give them a vision. They give them something to point to. And sometimes He doesn't give them the entire thing um, right at the beginning. They kind of have to work their way through it. You know, we see this in the life of Abraham. As God tells him, basically, pick up everything you have, and I'm going to send you to a new land. And that was kind of it. Could you imagine that? Ladies, your husband comes home and says, hey, we're going to move. Oh, okay, where? I don't know. Just get in the truck. <laughs> I bet that would be some funny conversations in that U-Haul. <laughs> but that's what God said to Abraham. Take up, pick up your stuff, and I'm going to send you to a new land. You're going to abandon your culture. You're going to abandon everything that you know, and I'm going to send you, and I'm going to do something great. But I just need you to do this part. And then I'll just, we'll kind of, we'll kind of work this through along the way. And we see actually in the life of Abraham, the vision that God really had for his life is still really unfolding today in what God wanted and what God was orchestrating through the life of Abraham. And imagine that what would have happened had Abraham not followed this crazy plan that God had for his life. Or when Moses it's out in the desert and he encounters a burning bush and God tells him that he's going to use him to lead his people out of Egypt. It's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty bold belief. It's a pretty bold goal to think that this guy who's wanted for murder in Egypt is going to walk into the court of the king and is going to say like, hey, you just need to let my people go. And it's all going to happen. Throughout Scripture, we see this time and time again. And we could sit here and we could recite from Genesis to Revelation this morning of how God uses vision to direct and instruct His people on what He wants us to accomplish. But this morning, before we dive into what I believe that God wants from us as a church collectively, we must first look at God wants what He wants from us individually. Because we can't... Um, obtain a bigger goal if we've failed to take care of the thing that we're first in charge of, and that's our own spiritual direction in our own spiritual life. And that begins this morning with surrender. And sometimes we surrender by necessity because we're completely out of options. And we saw that clip a few weeks ago from the movie Bruce Almighty where he finally had exhausted everything. He's like, I finally, I surrender to your will. And sometimes we're called to surrender and we don't even know it. Reminds me of the story of the, the day before Thanksgiving, a man in Ohio calls his adult son in Michigan and says, Son, I've had enough. After 40 years of marriage, I've decided that I'm leaving your mother. And the son responds like, Dad, whoa, what are you talking about? Well, you're talking crazy. What's going on? Don't you do a thing until I get there to talk some sense into you. The son then calls his sister in Illinois. He's like, you're not going to believe the conversation I just had with dad. He says he's leaving mom after 40 years of marriage. And she's like, this is crazy. Something's going on. Something's wrong with him. She's like, I'm calling dad right now. So she picks up the phone and she calls dad. And she says, dad, I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what's wrong with your, in your mind. I don't know what you're thinking. She's like, don't do anything until we get there. Dad hangs up the phone and looks at his wife and goes, Honey, the kids will be home for Thanksgiving, and they're paying their own way. <laughs> Sometimes we surrender to vision or a goal, and we don't even know that we're surrendering to a vision. Much like the kids in the story, the dad was clever to get the kids home for Thanksgiving, something that they didn't know was the goal. And he got them to pay their own way. And all the parents with grown kids said, Amen. 
It's funny, like as your kids get older, right now that I have one that's in college, I can, I can kind of talk to this, that you don't really hear from them as much, um, except usually when there's a need. And that need usually revolves around the bank. <laughs> the kids are on their way home now. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 55. And we're going to kind of talk about surrender this morning and, and, and what this looks like and and how we surrender our, our individual lives. Because before we can, we can really move forward and we can accomplish what God wants to accomplish in us, we have to first understand what God wants to accomplish in each one of us individually. Because we can't move on to a, to a bigger task or we can't move on to a collective task until we sorted ourselves out with God and we surrendered. Isaiah chapter number 55, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, show, uh, excuse me, so shall my word be that that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Some translations say void. But sit shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the fields clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now it's a long portion of Scripture, and some of it's really a familiar uh, passage of Scripture. Um, we, we, we've seen that, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. It's a very, uh, very familiar passage of Scripture for a lot of us. But it's important that we gain the context and we understand like, exactly what is being said in the Scripture and what leads up to Isaiah using the Scripture. So for a little bit of context, we're going to flip back uh, to Isaiah chapter number 53. And this is probably um, the more popular text in the book of Isaiah. Um, and it's also one of the most glorious texts, I think. It's beautifully written, and it, de it describes and, and depicts the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely He, who is Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that text is so incredible. And it's amazing for several reasons. But the first reason is, is that Isaiah is prophesying about the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross some 700 years before it actually happens. He talks about the life, the death, the burial. And the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's not just found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. It's also found in the prophecies of the Old Testament foreboding the brutal death 
and suffering of Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah chapter number 53, we see the, surf, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and his atoning work on the cross that he gave for us. And if we flip to Isaiah chapter 54, we see that, that now everything has been forgiven in Christ because of the work that he accomplished in chapter 53. It's all now forgiven. And so the chapter opens with the barren woman can now rejoice. And then it moves to the widowed woman can now call to her maker as husband. And the one who is divorced can run to the arms of Christ to be gathered, to be renewed, and to be restored. All because of the cross. All because of what took place in chapter 53. Now all can be forgiven and made right in the eyes of God. And the pinnacle of, this, of the verse in chapter 54 is verse 10. Isaiah 54, 10 says this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And, and I believe in the Old Testament this is the truest expression of the very nature and character of God, that he is abundant in mercy and he is rich in love. Steadfast. And that mercy and that love is never to be moved or shaken. And that should be enough this morning that we could just stop right there and just go home to understand that there is nothing that you and I can do that can separate us from the love of God, the Word says. That even back in the book of Isaiah, it says that in spite of all that we have done, that what was carried out on the cross has covered it all. You know, we used to sing an old song in the church, grace, grace, God's grace, right? And it's true that, that because of what Isaiah's talking about in chapter 53, about the sufferings, about Christ taking on our iniquity, I think a lot of times that we, we mistake God's grace for, it, for, the, for the origin of our faith. You know, we, we sing like amazing grace, Right? How sweet the sound. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? And a lot of times as we sing these songs and we take on this thing of God's grace, we feel like once we've obtained God's grace, now we walk through God's grace and then we walk into something better. And we continue to climb and we continue to strive and we continue to grow and we continue. Basically, grace is down here for the baby Christians and the newbies, and then we elevate and grow ourselves out of that. But we have to understand that that mentality is not Bible. Yes, we should grow in the love and the mercy and the admission of God, the Word says, but we have to understand that grace is actually the destination for the believer. You're never going to outgrow God's grace. That should have got a collective amen, but it didn't. You're never going to outgrow God's grace. There you go. You know why? Because you're still a sinner saved by what? Grace. See, so often we want to get, we want to get caught up in works. And works are important. We have to do the things diligently that God has called us to do. We have to strive to be better. But at the end of the day, you're never going to outgrow God's grace. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that each and every day that we are set apart and that we are called only because we have accepted what Jesus did on the cross and applied that grace to our life. Because Paul said it like this, right? Our righteousness is as what? A filthy rag. It's disgusting in the eyes of God. If you take away the grace of God and the blood of Jesus away from your life, no matter how long you've been walking in covenant relationship with Christ, God looks at you and he can't even stand what he sees. Now that sounds depressing, but don't, don't be upset. It's okay. Because when Christ looks at you, once you've accepted the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, he doesn't see that sin anymore. He sees that you've been set apart, that you're new, that you're a new creature. But we have to understand that we don't outgrow God's grace. And that's why he says that that grace and that love is never to be moved 
or shaken. Isn't that comforting this morning that there's nothing that you can do that God won't love you? That in spite of everything that we've done, man, if we, if we just like started listing all the things that collectively that we have done in our lives in this room, it'd probably be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? Some of us might have quite the rap sheet this morning, right? But in spite of everything that we've done, no matter how big, no matter how small, there's nothing that we can do to move from the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And I think that is something that if we're going to move on to what God wants us to do, we have to understand who we are. And who we are is a sinner saved by grace. You know, when they go into those like AA and NAs and all the other um, type meetings like that, you know, they walk into the room and they say like, hello, my name is whoever and I'm an alcoholic, right? Everyone's heard that played out. What we should start doing in church every week is we should all come in and we should say, hi, my name is Rich and I'm a sinner saved by grace. And let's just go ahead and get it all out of the way. That way everybody understands that there's nobody in here that's perfect. Some of you are looking at me like you think you might be. Maybe we should do that list, after all. We are still a sinner saved by grace. No matter how hard you try, you're still going to fall short. I'm still going to fall short. And what we should do in turn is and celebrate what God's done in our life. So let's come back now to Isaiah chapter 55. Now that we have a little bit of understanding, in 53, we're talking about the cross, and we're talking about what Jesus did. And in 54, we see that the love of God, right, has covered all of our sin. And, and he's very specific that says, um, the barren woman can now rejoice. The widowed woman can call uh, God basically her husband. The one who is divorced can run to the arms of Christ to be gathered in, to be renewed and to be restored. And that's what chapter 54 is really all about. And he's saying again, there's nothing you can do to separate me from the love of God. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 55. And let's look this morning at verse 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, we're not talking about food this morning. In the scripture, it w- but there is something that we want to pull out of this this morning that the prophet Isaiah is saying to us. Five times in that scripture, he says the word come. There's five invitations or five pleas, if you will, to join in this invitation, this banquet, this feast that he's describing. And let's answer a few questions in these first couple of verses in chapter 55. Who is this invitation being extended to? And secondly, what is being offered? Well, first of all, the invitation is to the thirsty. So if you're jotting down notes this morning, you can write down number one is thirsty. The thirsty. The first person in this room, this metaphorical room that we're paying this morning, is thirsty and they know it. They realize that they have a desire, that they need to be satisfied. Their thirst needs to be quenched. They have an understanding that they're thirsty and they're seeking to be quenched. The second person is thirsty but does not know it. You know, many of us, we exhaust all the other places in life that we have to turn. We run to other things to satisfy our souls. You know, toys. Big boy toys and big girl toys now, right? If we were in kids' church, we could talk about all the cool toys that they want for Christmas. I took my kids to Walmart yesterday to buy dog food, and it turned into this whole, like, I, it's so funny, it's always, I need. It's never, I'm like, no, you want. No, I need, Dad, I need this. I need it. 
I'm like, I don't think you understand what the word need means, right? They want, they're, they're, they're searching, right? They, 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 my kids want everything they see, literally everything. Like there's nothing. They're like, I want that. And I'm like, what do you need with a rubber mallet? And he's like, I don't know, but I want it. You know, everything. They're, they will take anything that you will buy them. Literally, I encourage you, take them to the store and watch what happens. This is not a sermon anecdote. It is truth. <laughs> they, they are like locusts. In the toy department, they want everything that they see. And a lot of times, we as adults, like, we're the same way in how we respond to the thirst and the hunger that dwells inside of us. We're chasing toys, a new job, um, or some people a new family, a new car, a boat, a bigger house, right? We're always looking for those things that are those status-satisfying items, right? Keeping up with the Joneses. And we, we try to fill our lives with all of this stuff and all of these things to satisfy this thirst. And there's so many people today that are walking in our nation that are thirsty and they just don't even know it. And they're trying to take everything they can find in life and they're trying to stockpile it so they can try to quench that thirst. But every time we turn to another thing, or something that's not Christ, we come back empty and we come back thirsty. What's being offered in this text? Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. So there are three distinct beverages that are being discussed in this scripture. And they normally don't go together. Um, wine and milk. I think those are two things that should probably never be uttered in the same sentence. Um, that just sounds gross. But in this text, you're going to see that all of these things are here for a purpose. And I believe they're all three pictures that are unique, but they're all three pictures of the gospel. Water. What does water actually do in the physical sense? It quenches your thirst, Right? And you've been outside, it's a hot day, maybe you've been cutting grass, maybe you've been working in the yards, or you've been doing some project. There is nothing better than a glass of ice-cold water, is there? It quenches your thirst. It immediately refreshes you. You feel energized. And the other day, I was, I was cutting the, the backyard at our house, and I was, like, dying. But I wanted to get done, so I didn't want to stop the mower and get off, go inside, get a drink, and come back down. And my wife came out and handed me a bottle of water. And it was amazing how that water recharged and refreshed me. And immediately I felt ready to go again. I was better. That's because that's what water does. Our body craves it as we sweat and as we get hot and as we work. It, it requires water. And we all know what it's like to be thirsty and to run to that water for satisfaction. You don't want to drink a glass of milk when you're thirsty. Imagine that. You come in from a hot day working in the yard and somebody brings you a cup of milk and you get all that, you know, milky film thing going on in your mouth and you're just, ugh, that's so gross on a hot day. You know? No, it's water that we crave when we're thirsty. Water quenches our thirst. And in this text, water is actually plural. It says waters, come to the waters. And it's plural for a purpose. It's plural to show us the abundance of what's available in Christ. Not just that it's a, a one-time thing. That it's something that every time as we come thirsty, we get recharged. It's the drinking from the living waters, right? Waters. It's showing the abundance and the quality that's available. In John chapter 4, Jesus is at the well with the woman from Samaria. And he asks her for a drink. And after a little bit of dialogue, we all know this story. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And so we see this even being prophesied back in the book of Isaiah that if we come thirsty and we drink from this water, this metaphorical water that's being offered at this metaphorical feast in this chapter of Isaiah, what it says is that a spring is actually going to come up in you to continually quench your thirst, which is where waters comes from. See, it's telling us that we are to be a part of the source of this spring in other people. See, we can't just hoard the water all for ourselves. We're called to be a spring. What does a spring do? It brings life, right? You ever, you ever been to, a, to a, a body of water that doesn't have a spring running through it? What happens to it? It gets stagnant. And what happens in stagnant water? It stinks. Nobody wants to be around it, and everything in it dies. But if that same body of water has a spring attached to it, what happens? It brings life, it brings vitality, and everything in it begins to spring forth with life. And it also affects everything around it with life. So Jesus is saying to have these springs of water if we're willing to drink what he's offering. And then what does she say? The woman at the well. She says, I have to have that water. That's what I have to have. It's never going to run dry. And it's available in abundance to each and every one of us this morning. The gospel today is an abundance to you and to me. Water at the end represents life. Water is life. The second thing that he talks about is milk. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate milk. I think milk is so disgusting. I just, blech. I hated it when I was a kid. And we used to have these like arguments every morning because my dad was like, you're going to drink a glass of milk before you go to school. And I would sit there and stare at it forever. And then finally I would like hold my nose and just try to get it down and then go brush my teeth and rinse my mouth out to get that milky film out of my mouth. The only thing I like milk for is cereal. Right? It's amazing. You put milk in cereal and it becomes delicious. Once all the sugar and all the stuff has settled into the milk, it becomes hummingbird water, you know, but not clear. But milk, milk is completely different than water. Milk is what you give to babies. You don't give babies water when they're infants, do you? No, in fact, they tell you definitely don't do that. And you certainly don't give babies wine. Hopefully we don't need to have that conversation. If we do, make an appointment. You give babies what? You give them milk. Why? Because milk has all the nutrients and ingredients to strengthen the bones and and the muscles and the nerves that help us develop and to grow and to be strong. In the same sense, spiritual milk is strength to our weak souls. So it's inviting us to have water, which brings forth life, and then milk, which brings strength. You know, what's the old commercials always say? You know, drink milk, it does the body good, right? Because of the calcium and some of the minerals and things in there that our body needs to build strong bones and to build muscles and to, and to, to help develop and to continue to grow. And they even tell you now, like, as you get older, you should drink a glass of milk a day. I put uh, Nestle in mine. I don't know if that changes any of the value of drinking the milk, but that's the only way I can do it. Um, But it's because milk gives us strength, and spiritual milk strengthens our weak, weary souls. Brings us to the third beverage, wine. Now, wine is different Then these other two beverages, for the fact that wine is not a necessity for life. No matter what you may think this morning, it is not a necessity for life. Water is a necessity for life. You cannot go without water. Eventually, you will die. You have to have it. In fact, your body is made up predominantly of what? Water. You have to have water to survive. You have to have nutrients, the type of thing that milk gives to, to feed your body so that you have energy and that you can move. You need things like that for strength, proteins and minerals and all the things that we do. Wine is not something that you need 
for life. It's not a necessity. You don't drink wine to, to strengthen your muscles. You don't need wine to satisfy your thirst. And I think in this text, if we look at the time and we look at the culture and we look at everything surrounding this scripture, and that's what we have to do when we look at the word. We can't just take it and, 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 and always take exactly what it means to you and I today in, in exactly the same context, right? Because it was a different culture. It was a different time, right? Like in the 1940s, if someone said, Man, I'm feeling gay today. That would be perfectly fine, wouldn't it? It would mean what? That you were happy. Those from the 1940s, we're glad you're still with us. It meant happy. In fact, in a lot of Christmas carols, you see that. But if I stood up here this morning and you didn't know that I was making an inference and I said, I'm feeling kind of gay this morning, you guys would start raising your eyebrows at me, wouldn't you? Why? Because the context of the word has changed based on our culture. It means it's the same word, but it has two completely different meanings based on which era and time that you're talking about. So when we're talking about this wine this morning, we're talking about this in the reference to what this looks like in the life of Isaiah and the culture in which he's writing. And at this time, wine was seen as a symbol of joy. Wine was seen as something that brought enjoyment and gladness. And so what it says, what he's basically saying this is that wine represents the delight and the joy that is found in relationship with God. Psalm 104.15 says this. It says, wine gladdens the heart of men. Don't you think I'm just making this up this morning? We see throughout scriptures a lot of times when we see wine reference, we see a lot of it talking about um, um, being merry or, or being glad and, and about it being in the heart. And it's a physical representation of joy in the context that he's talking. So basically what, we're, what he's saying here this morning is the key to spiritual life is not physical water, milk, and wine, but it's the spiritual Water, milk, and wine that Isaiah is making reference to. And he's saying that water brings us life. When we drink from the life that is the gospel, that is the life of Christ, what he offered the woman at the well, it brings new life and it resurrects us. And Jesus said that I have not come, but I've come for what? To give you life and to give you what? Life more abundantly, right? So that, that relationship with Christ brings us new life. It brings us an abundance of life. And that's what the water in this scripture is talking about. And then we talk about the milk, uh, the, the nutrients and the strength that we gain from the word of God and that we, that we gain from being, um, doing community together as a church and growing and learning from one another. It strengthens us in our resolve because no matter how much we don't want to admit it, being on the road and being on the path to follow Christ is not an easy road, is it? That's why the Bible described it as a narrow path, one that few people were on because it's challenging for us as human because it contradicts every nature that we have. So that milk brings strength to our spiritual lives. And then lastly, the wine is the joy of the Lord. And Isaiah is basically telling us here that God doesn't want us to be a bunch of unhappy people. I mean, certainly not this church, but I've walked into some churches and you wonder, what happened to everybody here? Everyone looks like they're just miserable. And people come in and they're searching for hope. And they look around and they go, I certainly don't see any hope here. Uh, these people look like they're in worse shape than I am. You ever been to a church like that before? I hope we're not that church. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is what? Our strength. You see how this equation is followed up throughout Scripture. We see these same inferences made over and over and over again in Scripture. And we could spend time this morning and we could pull out every 
um, scripture where it talks about water bringing life and this, this metaphorical water and the same thing with milk and the same thing with wine. We see it over and over and over. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding feast. It's his first miracle. What does he do? He turns water into wine. Why? Because it was the drink of celebration, a drink of joy and delight. This is what the cultural inference is this morning. So if God had only given us the cross of Christ, that would have been enough. That's what we need. When I said that wine was not a necessity for life, right? God could have just given us the cross and just given us grace and that been it. And that would be great and that would be enough. But he doesn't stop there. And we see that back in the scripture in Isaiah. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So what we see all three, life, strength, and joy. God being rich in his mercy, abounding in love, pours out showers on us, blessings upon blessing, and grace upon grace. Because he cares, because he loves us. He doesn't want us to just exist. God wants us to have life and to bring life to other people. And you can't bring life to people if you look sad all the time or if you look like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh or Snuffleupagus from Sesame Street. You know, he is the big elephant that talks like this and walks like that and everything's bad. That's not the life that God has called us to. Even when everything is bad in our lives, even when we're facing the storm, we should count it all What does the book of James say? Joy. Why? Because we know in the end that we win. It's a rigged game. We have to remember that. You win. You may not win here, but this is temporary. We win because of what Jesus has done in our life. Now, it's not enough for us to just hear this invitation. Verse 2 says, listen diligently to me. And verse 3 says, incline your ear. Now, there's a big difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? It's like when you have kids. And I tell my kids, I'm like, hey, it's time to go to bed. A lot of times they don't listen to that. They hear it, but they don't listen, do they? Usually I'll get a, but dad. But if I holler down in the basement when they're playing and I go, hey kids, do you want to get some ice cream? It's amazing that they not only hear, but they listen. And they're in the car at the speed of light wondering where everyone else is. Because there's a difference between hearing and listening. And God's telling us today, don't just hear this. He's saying, incline your ear. Listen diligently. Do this. He's saying, be a part of this. We've got to bring life. In order to bring life, we have to first get ourselves in a position that we're willing to do this. It's like this. How many of you in here have allergies? Like seasonal allergies to like pollens and all that fun stuff. Yeah, me too. And when we lived in San Antonio, I was allergic to like everything in San Antonio, I think. It was terrible. And so I would start off by taking Zyrtex and Claritin and all these other antihistamine type allergy pills. Well, the problem was is that after a while, like it didn't really work that well anymore. That I would just progressively get to the point where I get sick and then I'd have to do something bigger and then we would start back over this process and it was just like this continual cycle of Zyrtec, sick. Zyrtec, sick. And it was just awful. So finally I went to an allergy doctor and he said, you know, you can take these things but the only thing that they're doing is they are treating the symptoms. They're not actually addressing the problem. He's like, so, would you rather continue to go on through this cycle or we can actually treat the problem? 
And I said, well, I think it sounds better to treat the problem rather than the symptoms. So rather than taking all this medicine, they would actually give me shots every month of what I was allergic to in small doses. And eventually, over time, my body stopped reacting to what it didn't like. And it took way more allergies and stuff to be in the air for my body to react negatively to it because they were treating the problem and not just the symptom. And a lot of times in our lives, when we get to these points and we start to hear that God says, look, I want you to bring life. I want you to be water. He says, I want you to be milk and to bring strength. And I want you to be strong. And I also want you to have joy. We hear that, but we don't apply it. We just treat the symptoms. And not the problem. And I don't want to just walk around trying to fix symptoms of what's going on in my life. Or, or, or in your life. Because that doesn't do me any good. Because if you remove the symptom, guess what? The problem is still there. And the longer the problem sits, the closer it's going to be to a new symptom popping up. We have to treat the problems and not just the symptoms. So what is the problem? The problem is that you and I are human. It means we are inherently driven towards a sinful nature. Why? Well, we can think that, you know, for Adam and Eve. But it doesn't change the fact that you are more likely to sin than not to sin. Because we were born into sin, therefore we, we have this inclination. We're selfish. We're driven to satisfy our own needs. We're driven to want to be bigger and to be better. We, we are driven to compete with our fellow men. And we do it in church. We look and say, like, how righteous do I look this morning around all these other ones? Well, I'm definitely in a better shape than that guy is. I'm, I know what's going on in his life. I'm doing okay. They're falling apart, so we're doing not so great. So what are we doing? We're looking and trying to gauge our life based on someone else's life rather than treating the issues and the problems and the things that we have in our own life because we all have a sinful nature and we all have things that we struggle with. And the sooner we quit looking to see what everybody else is up to and start looking internally at ourselves and go, God, what do I need to fix in my life so that I can be everything that you've called me to be? But it's easy to just sit and observe others, isn't it? Rather than treating what's going on in our, in our own life. And if we're just willing to do what God has called us to do, and what has God called us to do? To bring life. The Bible says it like this in the Gospels, to be salt and to be light. To bring favor and to show light, to show the path in these dark times. Because imagine, like most of us in here, we feel like we're doing relatively well. But imagine how, how much more difficult it is without the grace and the love and the joy of God operating in your life to overcome. And we wonder our world is so crazy. Why people are so selfish. Why people are so driven to their wants. Like my kids, which they call their needs. People are driven this way because without the love of God and the mercy of God operating in our lives, this is what we turn into. And so what we have to do as, as individuals, number one, is we have to get ourselves fixed. We have to get ourselves where the joy of the Lord appears in our life again. We have to begin to be living water again to those around us. We have to start using what God has given us, the gifts that he's given us, and begin to serve and begin to work and begin to sow seed so that we can see the increase if we're going to do what God has called each and every one of us to do. And it begins with you. And me, individually. That individually we have to get it and we have to understand the process. It's like when my, my wife, when, when Wendy was pregnant, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of, a lot of increase in size, you know. And a lot of 
changes, right, to her body. It's amazing what happens that you women can go through. You guys are, uh, women are way better creations than men, all right? I'll just say it. Don't clap. Come on. You, you guys are like Stretch Armstrong dolls. You, God just created you to do all of this stuff, you know? And then you just go back to being a person again. You grow people. You expand and move, and then you get rid of that person, and then you're, boop, you're right back. It's amazing what God created. Some of you are like, I didn't go back. Yes, you did. But it's amazing what God created women to do and the changes and all the things that happen. It's just, it's amazing actually that this actually can happen and it happens all the time and that this just happens. But there's a lot of uncomfortable things. I imagine, I've never been pregnant, but I, you know, I've lived with someone who was twice and I, I you know, heard all about the changes. And, and there's a lot of things that are happening. It's very uncomfortable. I remember she got closer and closer and closer to the delivery date. It was like there was no way to position her that she didn't just like, you know, it was kind of like the last couple of weeks. Get this baby out of me. You know, it was kind of the the mantra. Most of you can probably relate to that. And she was pregnant in the dead heat of summer in South Texas, which I don't recommend. Um, So it's hot and she's, you know, just has a person. But what's amazing is, is you don't say, like, you, you know, like, that there's a day that's coming, right, that we get rid of that, that the, the baby is born, and the life springs forth, and then what happens to the body, all those changes, and all those weird things that go on, and all those strange cravings, and smells that make you sick, I don't understand how those things are related, by the way. Never understood that. I used to ask my wife, that. I'm like, why does growing a person inside of you make you throw up when you smell meat? I don't understand that. It's bizarre things that happen, right? But what happens the second that that baby's born, almost immediately, the body begins to recover. Things begin to change. The body gets back into balance, right? And it's the same way in our, in our spiritual lives. When, when, we're, when we're pregnant with expectation, right, with, with delivering something, and we, and we know it's uncomfortable when God begins to work and to grow something in us, it changes us. It moves us, and we get uncomfortable with it, and we have to go through the pain of actually delivering it. But what happens on the other side is there's new, what, life. A new person that can grow and mature into all that God has for them. And that's exactly what God is calling us to do this morning, is that we are responsible, you and I, for the people around us, for the people that, whose lives that we can impact on a daily basis if we're just willing to first be thirsty, second, be willing to surrender, and third, drink. If we're going to accomplish all that God wants in our lives, it begins with Surrender. It begins with us saying, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I surrender to your will. Not just, I want Jesus' grace in my life. No, it's further than that. It's, it's, God, I want to do what you have created me to do. I want to not just exist, I want to live. And I want to have that life more abundantly. And the only way that we can do that is taking you from where you are this morning and moving you on to the agenda that God has for your life. It's taking you from where you are to where God wants you to be. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. And God, how this is just beautifully portrayed in the book of Isaiah that we see in, in, in 53, the just the, 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 the depiction of the suffering and, and what you went through for each and every one of us so that we could have this life. And it puts you for us understanding that we are forgiven and that what was once bad and where there's negative even labels placed on us, that your word says that you brought us new life when we accept that. And then we see this beautiful invitation to be a part of what you're doing, to come and to sit at your table. As you said before, come and dine and 
to drink from this water that brings us everlasting life, that creates these springs in us that can be life to others as they see the grace of God and the mercy of God operating and being moved in our lives. And we see the, the gathering and the community and your word being the, that milk and that, that brings us strength and that continues to encourage us day by day and week by week. And the wine that's about the delight and the joy of being in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ and with others around us. And God, this morning, it's, before we can move on to do collectively what you've called us to do in this season for this community, we have to understand what you've called each and every one of us individually to be, and that you've called each and every one of us to be your light, to be that living water, to be those springs. God, and I pray, Lord, that we would be a joyous, happy people, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength this morning, and that, God, no matter what problems and situations may arise in our life, God, that we know that you have the answer and that you are the answer and that you are moving and that you're always working on our behalf. And, God, this morning I pray, Lord, that as as we surrender to you this morning, afresh and anew, God, we must surrender our will, we must surrender our expectations, Lord, and everything, and say, God, whatever I have, I place in your hands this morning. I I give you my life. I give you my time. God, I place it all in your hands. God, what do you want from me? And God, I pray this week, Lord, that you would challenge each and every one of us to discover what it is that you want from us. And we give you thanks, and we give you praise in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I challenge you all this week, as you, as you go through your week, to say, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do for your kingdom and in this time? And be willing to surrender it.